Welcome to July on this Tuesday home time with Jan Bartlett and I'll be with you until 6pm and done by law. Still missing Kevin Healy but he will be back. But today a speech by US journalist and commentator Chris Hedges at a Julian Assange support meeting. Fascism alive in Australia argues Professor Emeritus Stuart Rees. An update on Western Sahara with Polisario representative in Australia Kamal Fadel. Part of a webinar, Palestine and the media. Is the Venezuelan government turning right and suppressing the left with Fred Fuentes? But first, what has the change of guard in the White House meant for foreign policy? Dr Tim Anderson. President Biden has been in the White House for five months, what many viewed as possibly a, a breath of fresh air after four years of Trump. But what has changed with that change over, indeed, does it really matter where there is a change of the guard? Are others pulling the strings and giving the orders when it comes to foreign policy, particularly in the Middle East, as we're focusing on today? These are the questions I put to Dr. Tim Anderson. Well, Jan, for those of us who've watched a lot of transitions in these sort of regimes, um, it's a little bit tedious, isn't it? Because, of course, there is a change in tone and some of the, um, you know, the superficial features of things. But underneath, there's a very deep continuity. There always has been a very deep continuity in U.S. politics. Uh, and, and there's a great deal of inheriting the baggage of the previous regimes, you know, so... For example, Obama administration inherited this whole project of creating a new Middle East that the Bush administration had set in place. But of course, as we know, it's, it, with all of them, it's a deep state where it's running these sorts of things. And then Trump, despite him denouncing those wars, continued a great deal of what Obama was doing. And now Biden's um, uh, continuing a great deal of what Trump has done, not just in the Middle East, even even in terms of you know Cuba and Latin America and so on. There's a great deal of continuity. But at that level of, let's say, if we talk about the glacial shifts in the deep state in the US, there is a shift going on, but there's a, a huge amount of continuity. You know, Biden is still stealing oil and stealing wheat from Syria, for example. They're still talking the same tune with Iraq. But on the other hand, the process is set in motion to get out of Afghanistan seem to be happening. So there is actually... A glacial movement there is a shift in US practice or let's say the US retreat from its initial idea of trying to uh, dominate and control the whole Middle East region in the name of the new Middle East with as their deputies you know apartheid Israel and the medieval Saudis they know that's failing um, but they don't admit defeat very easily but they are contemplating some form of strategic retreat I believe but is it that important because there's not that many troops there now. They've got mm. drone technology that can virtually do what they like in any country in the world. Well, they can kill with drones, but they can't, and so can uh, their adversaries, you know. Let's remember that. There's a very powerful coalition now that's been formed as a result of what I call the eight wars of aggression in the Middle East in the last 20 years. You've got... Iran in particular, the leading independent country of the region, has remarkable um, drone and ballistic missile technology now. The Ansarullah coalition in Yemen even is using ballistic missiles internally against the Saudi 
uh, outposts within Yemen, you know. So there is uh, high-level technology on both sides, but you can't control on the ground with um, drones just to kill people. Where do you see Afghanistan going? It's going going back into the hands of the Taliban very quickly, um, but it's a Taliban that's significantly different to the one that was overthrown 20 years ago, but nevertheless it is a domestic movement, and whatever you think about them, they are Afghans. So very rapidly it's happening. It surprised me because Biden was talking about a withdrawal by September, you know, on the 20th anniversary of the attacks on New York, but it seems like um, things are really accelerating in Afghanistan at the moment. So where's the pressure coming from for him to accelerate it? As I said, I think that there is this glacial movement that runs across different regimes, and, and Trump was talking about it, but really only hesitatingly acting on it, you know, this uh, partial withdrawal from Syria, talking about a withdrawal from Afghanistan. He had some of the military people on his side, and there is a little bit of a vision on those, let's say, one faction of the U.S. military, which might win the day eventually, which are talking about a strategic retreat within the, re within the Middle East region. And another faction that was very reluctant to give up what was had been their strategic project, and, and therefore they put the brakes on, on Trump trying to withdraw from uh, Afghanistan, Iraq and Syria. Um, but it seems like um, you know those forces are still in play. And even though Biden has shown these elements of continuity, like I said, in, in, in Syria, keeping that, and as you say, a relatively small amount of troops there, but nevertheless they're sufficient in the short term to hang on to, appear to hang on to parts of territory in Iraq and in Syria to a lesser extent now in Afghanistan, but because they're proxies. But those proxies to differing degrees are very fragile, like for example the Kurdish, the Kurdish separatist proxies in Syria, which are largely run by the Kurdish movement in, in Turkey are extremely vulnerable. As soon as the US goes, they'll be finished, basically, because they don't have any support um, anywhere in the region except Israel, basically. So the US presence and the Turkish presence, with some different characteristics, are extremely important to keeping those proxies, militia, going in, in, uh, in Syria, for example. But the retreat that's been spoken of, um, and it was spoken of when the Trump administration was in place, is that a withdrawal from Afghanistan, Iraq and Syria and an attempt to sort of place the responsibility for weakening those independent states and keeping them away from the, the process of, for example, liberating the Syrian territory that Israel occupies and then um, moving to the confrontation over apartheid Israel and the, and the situation of the Palestinians. That role, I believe, they're going to hand over to their so-called allies, the Turkey and, uh, and the Saudis and so on. So they want, to they want to pull back to some of their key, what they see their key bases in the region, uh, the military bases in the Persian Gulf, for example, Israel itself, perhaps Jordan, and leave the battle in Syria, Iraq and Afghanistan to their proxies to, to do it through. So in other words, they're not giving up quickly, but they're seeing failure on many fronts. And, uh, and I should include Yemen in that one, they are looking at, I believe, a, a strategic retreat. Whether that's going to happen quickly or you know, within months or within years, it's a little bit difficult to say, but it does seem that events are moving very quickly in Afghanistan now. Well, when you consider 
the 20 years of war by the US against those countries, Iraq, Syria, Iran and Afghanistan, none of those countries have now or have had a government that supports the US in that area. No, that's right. That's, and therefore, from the US point of view, this is disconnectedness. So they call it disconnectedness or a hole in the, the plan that they have for what they call CENTCOM. You know, Central Command is a part of the Pentagon which arrogates its supposed control of the entire Middle East. And they don't have that because there are a number of independent countries there, even though to some extent they have differed in their, or in, to a large extent they've differed in their composition, but their, their strategic objectives are rather coming together. You know, the, the Yemenis, for example, the, the one real revolution of the, of the region in the last 10 years after the so-called Arab Spring has aligned much more closely with the objectives of the other independent countries, the so-called axis of resistance. You know, they see the U.S. as their principal enemy and Israel as its principal agent, and so there's been a great deal of internationalizing of the resistance and the strategic aims as a result of all of these wars over, over 20 years. How is Syria going at the moment? Syria's in a very difficult situation because they, as with many others of, the, of these wars, and I'm reminded of Nicaragua, they won the military war to a large degree, to mostly 95%, but they are really um, suffering under the economic war. The more so because the economic war in the region is against so many countries, contiguous countries. You know, the economy of Lebanon is on the ground at the moment, and Iraq has also got partial sanctions against it. And as you know, there's these so-called maximum pressure sanctions on Iran that Trump elevated or cranked up from the ones that uh, that were there before, that, that Obama had before, because remember, Obama, even though he created that uh, nuclear deal or he signed off on that nuclear deal, but nevertheless, that, that left a lot of um, so-called sanctions. We, call, we should call them coercive measures because they're not really sanctions in international law terms against Iran. So Iran has been under a great deal of pressure and Biden has not done anything really to alleviate that, despite the fact that he was part of the nuclear deal of 2015. So the sanctions that are hurting Syria are the more powerful because they are applying to, you know, Palestine, Yemen, Iraq, Iran, Lebanon, all of the all of its allies basically. The one positive side of that dialectic we should call it is that it's accelerated the movement of the big the very big powers that the US hoped to exclude from the region, Russia and China, which now have very important strategic um, agreements, particularly with Iran in the region and uh, in the case of Russia, this military alliance, which is cuts across from Lebanon across to to Iran now. So on the back of that military alliance, we have this new strategic and economic agreement cutting into place, where Russia, for example, has consolidated its uh, naval and air bases in Syria. Russia and China are strategically investing in oil, for example, and some other important economic infrastructure matters, you know. So this is what the U.S. wanted to exclude uh, the possibility of with the series of wars that it's conducted since 2001, since 20 years ago. And, of course, precisely the reverse is now happening. How do you believe Russia will get on with the Taliban? 
they're pragmatic, you know, like uh, like the Chinese, um, and to some extent like Iran. Iran is not without pragmatism too, despite the strong religious element in, in the Iranian state. They see it as a difficult situation, but nevertheless the Taliban is an indigenous movement and they're going to have to deal with it, basically. And the, their principal aim has been to expel the foreign occupation. I think the Russians will look at it in a very similar way to Iran, for example, although in the case of Iran, their neighbours and um, and their or their much more closely integrated neighbours, and to some extent, Iran has the the idea that uh, any sort of Islamic movement is potentially a fraternal one, and they can have a pragmatic relationship with. Um, in the case of Russia, I think that you know that they've got a very uh, a very deep concern about the role that. Islamic extremism has played because of the history in the Caucasus and in southern Russia, but nevertheless, they see that for what it is, that it's coming mainly from a US or Western-backed Saudi sectarianism that's used religion as a weapon, basically. And I don't think that uh, they're concerned about the role of religion within particular countries, so long as it doesn't export terrorism in the way that the US has encouraged the Saudis and some of those other Gulf monarchies to, to do. Who are the main supporters of the Taliban outside of the country? Well, that's a difficult one to say, really. It's rather complicated because in some respects the Saudis have tried to get influence there, but they haven't really, they haven't really succeeded. So you have a number, of, um, a number of important factors, you know, not least Pakistan, for example, the Pakistani role in Afghanistan is a rather, well, the, let's say the covert Pakistani relationship in Afghanistan is important. Remember, a lot of these fighters, and as I said, the Taliban has changed over, over the last 20 years, but in the first instance, they were bred in refugee camps in Pakistan, which were on the one hand, you know, linked to the CIA, but that's also a, a, a relationship which is in play at the moment. Um, but on the other hand, the Pakistani Secret Service has always had this relationship there. Um, Iran has its own, on the other side of things, has um, its own covert relationships with all of the all of the Afghan factions, really. So, but this is something that is relatively natural in the sense that you know neighbours always have to get along with each other, whereas the U.S. relationship is something far more tenuous and far more disruptive because there's nothing as organic in the US relationship with the factions there. But I think we'll see a very a very rapid collapse in the, the so-called government in Afghanistan that the US set up. It's happening already almost every day. We're seeing some quite significant developments in the collapse of that um, totally artificial infrastructure of, of the state that the US set up in Afghanistan. How significant is the new president of Iran? Raisi is, um, you know, called a hardliner by the West, uh, and uh, in, the, in Iran they call it uh, a principalist. He is correctly seen as more closely aligned to the leader's um, orientation on things because the outgoing president, Rouhani, is really part of a faction which has had quite uh, an influence in Iran, but you, you have to call it a liberal faction. It's liberal in the sense that it's has a lot of middle-class support from the idea of more open economic relationships with the West and the rest of the world, basically in the hope that there's going to be economic uh, opportunities there. But it's also 
been a far, a far more subject to the diplomatic waves of pressure that have been coming on Iran. And, and of course, they've suffered. The liberal side of Iranian politics has suffered because of the failure of that attempt to sort of come to some sort of agreement through a what was effectively a unilateral, not a unilateral, a multilateral, but targeted disarmament process against Iran. Iran hasn't got any nuclear weapons, but it was subject to this strange sort of process. Now, Raisi comes in with a far clearer or a far more dour view of that whole process of engaging in these diplomatic relations with the US and uh, with the idea of the resistance economy that Iran is not going to be subject to these sorts of pressures. You know, I think you can see the incoming president of Iran as hardening Iran's approach to the US uh, as uh, even though there's there's great continuity in Iranian politics too because the relationship set up with China, for example, and the one that's in train with Russia at the moment, I'm sure they're going to be followed through and I'm sure there's going to be a great deal of diplomacy, which is uh, support. That is to say, they're not going to outright reject the nuclear deal because they don't have to, really. It's the US that abrogated it. So there'll be some smoothing over of the edges, diplomatically speaking, but I think that the President DeRacy, when he, when he comes into office, is going to strengthen the independence um, and assert more strongly the independence of Iran and look more definitively, it's a process that's already begun, to its eastern and northern relationships. That is to say, the integration of Iran into the growing Eurasian bloc, which is the big fear of the US really, and at the root of all of these wars in the Middle East, that the US is fearing losing its influence in Europe and Asia, precisely through the integration of Europe and Asia or the formation of other multilateral blocs. And I think Raisi will help accelerate that integration of Iran as the biggest independent country in what they call West Asia and its integration with uh, East Asia and with Russia and with Europe, basically. So it's bad news for the US in that sense. I don't think they'll give up on trying to normalize, uh, in inverted commas, their relationships with the Europeans, for example. They don't want to abandon that, but they don't have much respect left for the Europeans because when the nuclear deal fell apart, the Europeans showed that they weren't able to act independently from the US. So there's too much um, integration of their companies and the US could continue to threaten and fire, impose huge fines on European companies and European banks if they did business with Iran or Cuba or whoever it was. So I think the, the independence um, element of Iranian politics is going to be strengthened with this new president. What about the new prime minister in Israel? Is it more of the same or not? Yes and no. I mean, the problem is that the openly fascist faction in Israel has become dominant with the Netanyahu regime, which lasted for many, many years. I, I'm not sure that the change in the in the Israeli regime is that significant. It's a strange sort of coalition because it's included the Arab list and some of the people that were critical of Netanyahu with some right-wing people who are sound the same as or even worse than, than Netanyahu. But I think what's more significant is under the surface is that the openly fascist faction that kept Netanyahu in power and now supports elements of the um, of the current government is out of step with the, the Zionist and the Jewish community outside Israel. They're about similar in size, you know, and most of them 
are in uh, in the US and New York and New Jersey and so on. That's where liberal Zionism dominates and liberal Zionism is far more sensitive to the exposure of the crimes of, of Israel and exposure of the of apartheid Israel. They don't like being identified with open fascism and, and apartheid. So there's there's an increasing split, I think, which is more important between the Zionists inside Israel and the Zionists in North America and Europe, which is where most of them are from, basically. And I think that's going to work um, in the longer term against the attempt to maintain this racist apartheid Zionist state. There's going to be increasing disillusion. I think the current regime there is, is fairly fragile, really, because you see a lot of supporters of Netanyahu now very upset with um, a, an administration that it seems to be led by another right-winger, Bennett, but they're not very happy with it because the uh, the coalition or the anti-Netanyahu coalition is really has a lot of people they consider their enemies. Any reaction from the Australian government? Well, the Australian government is extraordinarily dependent on what Washington says. And, I mean, this is notorious. I've spoken to leaders in Latin America and the Middle East. It's embarrassing even to me because they will just start off by saying, we know that there's no foreign policy in Australia. They just take orders from Washington. And it's embarrassing, but it's true, you know. And they don't really take Australia seriously in that sense. I think the worst example of that at the moment is this extraordinary falling of not just the government, but also the Labor Party to a fair degree into this anti-China campaign. Why is Australia falling into an anti-China campaign you know, with its biggest trading partner being China? You know, this is just extraordinary and, and really humiliating in a sense. Now, in the Middle East, similarly, there's no... Uh, maybe there's some Australian independence in... Uh, relative independence in the Pacific Islands to a certain degree. But in the Middle East, there's absolutely no independent line there. They will do what the US is doing. I, I recall... When the nuclear deal was signed in 2015, the, the foreign minister then, Julie Bishop, put a scarf on her head and she was in Tehran so quickly, you know, to do deals. There's a lot of Australian companies that would like to do business with Iran because Iran is big, it has depth, it has capacity in a lot of high-tech areas too. I mean, it's one of the, almost a reversal of the traditional role of, of what we saw Western countries and so-called third world countries where the Western countries were dominating manufacturing and the third world countries had primary products. Now, if you look at Australia, Iran, it's the other way around, basically. Australia wants to sell agricultural products, basically, and there's a lot of interest in uh, things like nanotechnology and so on from, from Iran. So there's no real ideological commitment to it, I think, either with Iran or with China. I think that the creatures that, that seem to run Canberra really are, are so flexible that they will jump the other way when the opportunity arises, and they're, they're waiting to, to get permission from Washington to do that. No one really takes them seriously in, in these areas of big, um, you know, where there's a great game going on, where there's a huge strategic conflict going on. Finally, Tim... The death of Donald Rumsfeld, how would you summarise his political career and impact? Well, he's one of these characters who, you know, inhabited the ambitions of the, of the deep state at a time when, as I said, we best understand what's been going on in the Middle East by linking all of these wars, uh, at least eight, nine, if we, include, if we consider the repression of the the uprising in Bahrain. But all of these wars were linked together by a project that was set up 
in the late 20th century and enacted after the attacks on, on New York. And Rumsfeld was part of that. Rumsfeld was part of notoriously the, the invasion of Iraq, which was a far more, it was far more obvious to Western audiences that this was a war of aggression. I think even the then Secretary General of the UN, Kofi Annan, said it was a illegal act. It was a war of aggression, which is, of course, the mother of all great crimes, the crimes against humanity and war crimes. And Rumsfeld was at the centre of that. He was massaging the message and then admitting, you know, that saying that there were weapons of mass destruction, that this was a basis for saying that the invasion was in self-defence, which was ludicrous. But nevertheless, because our media and our states repeated this endlessly, Rumsfeld was at the centre of that, and he was untouched because of the, the appalling nature of, of our corporate media, basically. They didn't dismantle a man for his lies, as they should have at the time. Later on, he became a laughingstock. But in a sense, he was just one of these characters who, as I say, inhabited this huge project, which they called the New Middle East Project. He's simply a symbol, like Colin Powell holding a little vial of some sort of biological or chemical agent in the UN Security Council. They are now icons of some of the beginnings of the, those, that series of wars. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, Jan. Always great to hear from Dr. Tim Anderson. Hi, I'm Ruby from Fitzroy Primary, and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR. What follows is a speech by Chris Hedges, and as Philip Adams writes, perfectly describes why Julian Assange is being tortured for publicising facts in the public arena. Chris Hedges is an American Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, a Presbyterian minister, author and TV host, and was foreign correspondent for 15 years for the New York Times, where he served in the Middle East. A society that prohibits the capacity to speak in truth extinguishes the capacity to live in justice. And this is why we are here tonight. Yes, all of us who know and admire Julian decry his prolonged suffering and the suffering of his family. Yes, we demand that the many wrongs and injustices that have been visited upon him be ended. Yes, we honor him for his courage and his integrity. But the battle for Julian's liberty has always been much more than the persecution of a publisher. It is the most important battle for press freedom of our era. And if we lose this battle, it will be devastating not only for Julian and his family, but for us. Tyrannies invert the rule of law. They turn the law into an instrument of injustice. They cloak their crimes in a faux legality. They use the decorum of the courts and trials to mask their criminality. Those such as Julian who expose that criminality to the public are dangerous, for without the pretext of legitimacy, the tyranny loses credibility and has nothing left in its arsenal but fear, coercion, and violence. The long campaign against Julian and WikiLeaks 
is a window into the collapse of the rule of law, the rise of what the political philosopher Sheldon Wolin calls our system of inverted totalitarianism, a form of totalitarianism that maintains the fictions of the old capitalist democracy, including its institutions, iconography, patriotic symbols and rhetoric, but internally has surrendered total control to the dictates of global corporations. I was in the London courtroom when Julian was being tried by Judge Vanessa Baritzer, an updated version of the Queen of Hearts in Alice in Wonderland, demanding the sentence before pronouncing the verdict. It was judicial farce. There was no legal basis to hold Julian in prison. There was no legal basis to try him, an Australian citizen, under the U.S. Espionage Act. The CIA spied on Julian in the embassy through a Spanish company, UC Global, contracted to provide embassy security. This spying included recording the privileged conversations between Julian and his lawyers as they discussed his defense. This fact alone invalidated the trial. Julian is being held in a high-security prison so the state can, as Niels Melzer, the UN Special Rapporteur on Torture, has testified, continue the degrading abuse and torture at hopes will lead to his psychological, if not physical, disintegration. The U.S. government directed, as Craig so eloquently reported, the London prosecutor, James Lewis. Lewis presented the directives to Baritzer. Baritzer adopted them as her legal decision. It was judicial pantomime. Lewis and the judge insisted they were not attempting to criminalize journalists and muzzle the press while they busily set up the legal framework to criminalize journalists and muzzle the press. And that is why the court worked so hard to mask the proceedings from the public, limiting access to the courtroom to a handful of observers and making it hard and at times impossible to access the trial online. It was a tawdry show trial, not an example of the best of English jurisprudence, but the Lubyanka. Now I know many of us here tonight would like to think of ourselves as radicals, maybe even revolutionaries. But what we are demanding on the political spectrum is in fact conservative. It is the restoration of the rule of law. It is simple and basic. It should not in a functioning democracy be incendiary. But living in truth in a despotic system is the supreme act of defiance. This truth terrifies those in power. The architects of imperialism, the masters of war, the corporate-controlled legislative, judicial, and executive branches of government and their obsequious courtiers in the media are illegitimate. Say this simple truth, and you are banished, as many of us have been, to the margins of the media landscape. Prove this truth as Julian, Chelsea Manning, Jeremy Hammond, and Edward Snowden did by allowing us to peer into the inner workings of power, and you are hunted down and persecuted. Shortly after WikiLeaks 
released the Iraqi war logs in October 2010, which documented numerous U.S. war crimes, including video images of the gunning down of two Reuters journalists and ten other unarmed civilians in the collateral murder video, the routine torture of Iraqi prisoners, the covering up of thousands of civilian deaths, and the killing of nearly 700 civilians that had approached too closely to U.S. checkpoints. The towering civil rights attorneys, Len Weinglass and my good friend Michael Ratner, who I would later accompany to meet Julian in the Ecuadorian embassy, met with Julian in a studio apartment in central London. Julian's personal credit cards had been blocked. Three encrypted laptops with documents detailing U.S. war crimes had disappeared from his luggage en route to London. Swedish police were fabricating a case against him. In a move, Ratner warned, that was about extraditing Julian to the United States. WikiLeaks and you personally are facing a battle that is both legal and political, Wineglass told Assange. As we learned in the Pentagon Papers case, the U.S. government doesn't like the truth coming out, and it doesn't like to be humiliated. No matter if it's Nixon or Bush or Obama, Republican or Democrat in the White House, the U.S. government will try to stop you from publishing its ugly secrets. And if they have to destroy you and the First Amendment and the rights of publishers with you, they are willing to do it. We believe they are going to come after WikiLeaks and you, Julian, as the publisher. Come after me for what? asked Julian. Espionage, Wineglass continued. They're going to charge Bradley Banning with treason under the Espionage Act of 1917. We don't think it applies to him because he's a whistleblower, not a spy, and we don't think it applies to you because you are a publisher. But they are going to try to force Manning into implicating you as his collaborator. Come after me for what? And that is the question. They came after Julian, not for his vices, but for his virtues. They came after Julian because he exposed the more than 15,000 unreported deaths of Iraqi civilians, because he exposed the torture and abuse of some 800 men and boys aged between 14 and 89 at Guantanamo, because he exposed that Hillary Clinton in 2009 ordered U.S. diplomats to spy on UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon and other UN representatives from China, France, Russia, and the UK, spying that included obtaining DNA, iris scans, fingerprints, and personal passwords, part of the long pattern of illegal surveillance that included the eavesdropping on UN Secretary General Kofi Annan in the weeks before the US-led invasion of Iraq in 2003 because he exposed that Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, and the CIA orchestrated the June 2009 military coup in Honduras that overthrew the democratically elected president, Manuel Zelaya, replacing it with a murderous and corrupt military regime, because he exposed that George W. Bush, Barack Obama, and David Petraeus prosecuted a war in Iraq that under post-Nuremberg laws is defined as a criminal war of aggression, a war crime that they authorize hundreds of targeted assassinations, including those of U.S. citizens in Yemen, and that they secretly launched missile, bomb, and drone attacks on Yemen 
killing scores of civilians because he exposed that Goldman Sachs paid Hillary Clinton $657,000 to give talks, a sum so large it can only be considered a bribe. And that she privately assured corporate leaders she would do their bidding while promising the public financial regulation reform because he exposed the internal campaign to discredit and destroy British Labor Party leader Jeremy Corbyn by members of his own party, because he exposed how the hacking tools used by the CIA and the National Security Agency permits the wholesale government surveillance of our televisions, computers, smartphones, and antivirus software allowing the government to record and store our conversations, images, and private text messages even from encrypted apps. Julian exposed the truth. He exposed it over and over and over until there was no question of the endemic illegality, corruption, and mendacity that defines the global ruling elite. And for these truths, they came after Julian as they have come after all who have dared rip back the veil on power. Red Rosa now has vanished too, Bertolt Brecht wrote about the German socialist Rosa Luxemburg who was murdered she told the poor what life is about, and so the rich have rubbed her out. We have undergone a corporate coup d'etat, where the poor and working men and women are reduced to joblessness and hunger, where war, financial speculation, and internal surveillance are the only real business of the state, where even habeas corpus no longer exists, where we as citizens are nothing more than commodities to corporate systems of power, ones to be used, fleeced, and discarded, to refuse to fight back, to reach out and help the weak, the oppressed, and the suffering, to save the planet from ecocide, to decry the domestic and international crimes of the ruling class, to demand justice, to live in truth, is to bear the mark of Cain. Those in power must feel our wrath, and this means constant acts of mass civil disobedience It means constant acts of social and political disruption for this organized power from below is the only power that will save us and the only power that will free Julian. Politics is a game of fear, and it is our moral and civic duty to make those in power very, very afraid. The criminal ruling class has all of us locked in its death grip. It cannot be reformed. It has abolished the rule of law. It obscures and falsifies the truth. It seeks the consolidation of its obscene wealth and power. And so, to quote the Queen of Hearts, metaphorically, of course, I say, off with their heads. And that was a speech by Chris Hedges in New York recently. Following on from that, the Icelandic newspaper Sturdin reports that a key witness in the US prosecution of Julian Assange has admitted in an interview with the outlet that he fabricated critical accusations in the indictment against the wicked leader founder. Sturdin reports, the witness who has a documented history with sociopathy and has received several convictions for sexual abuse of minors and wide-ranging financial fraud 
made the admission in a newly published interview in Sturden, where he also confessed to having continued his crime spree while working with the Department of Justice and the FBI and receiving a promise of immunity from prosecution. This major witness would be Iceland's Sigurdur Sigi Thornson, a paid FBI informant who, after his short-lived association with WikiLeaks, has been found guilty of sexually abusing nine boys, as well as embezzlement, fraud and theft in his home country. The court found that he is, by all definitions, a sociopath, suffering from a severe antisocial personality disorder. However, the court found that he did know the difference between right and wrong and could not be considered insane and therefore could stand trial. This was all public knowledge when the US government was building its case to extradite Julian Assange to America and try him under the Patriot for journalistic activity which exposed US war crimes. A prosecution for which Julian Assange is still locked up in Belmarsh Prison pending Washington's appeal of a UK court's denial of the extradition request. And now we know for a fact that the odious person whose testimony formed the basis for much of the prosecution was lying. This is 3CR. Professor Emeritus Stuart Reese's recent contribution to Pearls and Irritations is titled Fascism is Alive in Australia. Stuart, fascism is a term many people steer clear of when defining a government or a social organisation, arguing that it's important not to confuse situations. Another wrote that trying to define fascism is like trying to nail jelly to a wall. In your view, what is fascism and how do you first fit Australia into this definition and do you have a starting date for your conclusion? Look, first of all, I understand your point about being cautious about using that term because it's quite serious what has happened under fascism. Look, it's clearly about two or three things. I mean, the, this, this, this George Orwell's overall comment, well, it's about bullying and all that follows. But more specifically, it's clearly about secrecy in government. It's about a certain fascination with violence or with force to solve problems. And uh, I think it's about non-accountability. In other words, oligarchies, small groups, more or less uh, doing what they like or what they can get away with. Political theorists throw in comments about um, um, people wanting to behave as, as masculine as possible. Well, give us some examples of the Australian scene which you believe fits into that definition of fascism. Well, yeah, they, they are almost infinite. The treatment of the Labour MP Shoket Mothermane when 40 police in two shifts of 20 each for 18 hours basically raided his home and admitted that, it was, that he was not under suspicion of anything himself, but uh, left the family bewildered and traumatised. Secondly, pretty obviously, the treatment of uh, Bernard Caleri and Citizen Kay for um, merely talking about reporting 
the illegal behaviour of the government is um, another obvious example. The treatment of David McBride, the military lawyer, the treatment of the tax office whistleblower um, is, is another obvious example. In some ways, I might add the, you know, the, the cruelty, the appalling cruelty towards, towards the Tamil family. Do you set a date to when this started to occur? Can you pinpoint, say, 9-11, which some people do? Is that what you see? Yes, I think, I think uh, the response to 9-11, which, which was to suddenly pass all these anti-terrorist laws and to have government using police and intelligence services to maintain every possible form of control, that, that has produced a very different culture. I mean, in, um, in the brilliant Brian Toohey's work called Secrecy, I mean, he, he says that the fascist behavior is, derives um, from or the dangers derived from elected government. But why has Australia gone much further than other comparable countries? It's a good question. I think there's an odd strain of authoritarianism. It's almost as though the first fleet has just landed. There's also a deep-seated conservatism and, I'd have to say, racism that we can't, that uh, you only have to interview a handful of indigenous people and asylum seekers to know that, that that all comes together in this in fascist-like behaviour. And um, I think you've got to, you know, by my saying this is what is going on, this is the term I'm using, at least it's going to provoke a um, reaction and a, and a, a discussion, I hope. What about the use of monopoly mainstream media to enforce these tendencies. I'm talking about the Murdoch press, which has primacy all over Australia. Yeah. And, also, and also the strangling of the ABC together with that. Well, those are, those are excellent points. I mean, it, the eradication of dissidents has been a, a tradition of fascism. And um, the Murdoch press, you can, you can have a look at the, including the the shop jocks, people like that, you see, you hear them, see them on Sky News. Just watch the, have a look at the treatment of the Labour MP Shokat Mossamain uh, by the Murdoch media. And, or, or consider the raids of journalists, the raids on the ABC, and the determination to cut back on the ABC and, if possible, privatise it. Don't let's have transparent media. Don't let's have accountable, honest, sophisticated media. Let's, um, you know, su suppress, su suppress it where we can. I mean, that unfortunately is also part of the culture that, uh, that I'm talking about. Not sure whether this fits into the pattern of the Australian government, but the increasing use of the law by politicians against sections of the media for statements that they say defames them. Yeah, sure. Look, we desperately need a, we desperately need a bill of rights that will, would stand apart from, you know, the behaviour of um, 
of bullying politicians and uh, and sections of the media that would ensure standards, ensure ensure you know rights of appeal where appropriate. Because the 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 traditions I'm talking about have unfortunately invaded the legal landscape. I mean, some of the the decision by the High Court recently, by a vote of four to three, to apparently support the notion that just certain asylum seekers could be detained indefinitely, meaning forever and ever, (laughs) that that is amazingly harsh and cruel. So the culture, a bit like a pandemic, is, is spreading in all sorts of institutions. So you're talking maybe about the separation of powers? Certainly. There has to be a... I mean, civil society was built by deliberations about a separation of powers, not least, for example, about the separation between church and state. And you can see the absurd power, particularly in America, of evangelicals in becoming part of government and, and a certain determination for their dogma to be part of government in this country. But there's accumulating evidence about um, that certainty and dogma trying to invade sections of of the coalition in pre-selection of candidates who will do their bidding. The other issue I'd like you to talk about is the new regulations said by the Assistant Treasurer, Michael Soka, to ensure that charities who engage in or use resources against what they say is good behaviour, that they will be penalised and possibly lose their status, their their tax deductibility status. It's another good example. The idea that um, that charities should should conform, should be brought to heel. I mean, there's there'd be a desperate attempt. There has been, I'm sure, by the coalition to um, abolish Get Up, the grassroots organisation. The attack on the charities or the or the, the regulation. That smacks of the same tradition that I'm talking about. Control, if at all possible. Don't allow any undue criticism and discourage dissent. Only reward conformity. That's the what elsewhere I've called you know, one-dimensional power, top-down. When the powerful, disproportionately over the ages they've been men, demand only obedience. That's what they want. I mean, that might be appropriate in running a prison. It might be appropriate running the military, but not, but not a country and not educational institutions. Apart from anything else, it's, it's not just dangerous, it happens to be lazy. That's, that's another reason why this tradition is popular, though you don't have to think very much. You just ask for conformity. And the increasing use of regulation rather than a topic or an issue being debated in Parliament and passed by the Parliament. That, that's absolutely correct. I mean, and what concerns me too is that a lot of this legislation has been bipartisan, but Labour's gone along, along with it, frightened that it will be wedged, as they say, or frightened that it would be depicted by the Murdoch media as... Um, you know, against the um, uh, national interest or against the interest of so-called battlers in marginal constituencies. The surfeit of regulations, if you look at the 
the 60 anti-terrorist laws passed since 9-11, most of which most of the population would not have a clue about until there's some sort of um, well-publicized raid or prosecution. I'd even throw in the cruelty, the maltreatment, the indifference to to perhaps the world's most famous whistleblower, Julian Assange, an Australian citizen who's not been convicted of anything. But it's as though because of this uh, fascist tradition, it's okay for him to rot away in Belmarsh prison. You know, that, and yet, yet it's called, that's called the administration of justice. It's, it's very Orwellian. So what we're saying is a slow and definite decline in all our civil liberties. Absolutely. I mean, and it's, it's increased under the, under the shadow of the COVID infection, the COVID pandemic, the COVID lockdowns. You can see, you could, I mean, I was a few months ago, well, about a year ago now, in the Philippines. There you've got an, a dreadful dictator whose entitlement to do what he liked in the most brutal fashion was being justified by the COVID pandemic. That's given an entitlement to do anything, which is, um, and, and given that we're likely to have to live with pandemics like this one, then we better make sure that the humanitarian alternatives, the universal human rights alternatives, are um, resuscitated. And of course, Stuart, for you to get your views across to the mainstream people or to the grassroots, it becomes more and more difficult. Yes, I'm not sure that the Sydney Morning Herald would have accepted my article about fascism, but, um, but I didn't try. The forum for discussing these issues is, is important. I'm not sure quite how social media or substitutes for the so-called mainstream. But that event that I referred to at the Wheeler Centre in Melbourne on July the 22nd, when we're going to be talking about the future of the human rights post-COVID, that's very, very important. So give that date again. It's July the 22nd in the evening in the Wheeler Centre in Melbourne. And I'm together with... Um, uh, Julian Burnside, I'm discussing, I'm discussing uh, the future of human rights post-COVID. In other words, how do we breathe some oxygen into respect for human rights as opposed to the traditions, the punitive traditions that I've been talking about. Thank you once again, Stuart. Okay, Jan, thanks for your interest. Emeritus Professor Stuart Race. Hi, we're the Marindas, and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM. We hear daily reports of the impact of COVID-19 on Western countries, but almost nothing from Africa. Our concern today is with the Western Sahara refugees in camps in Western Algeria and in the Moroccan-occupied part of Western Sahara. Kamal Fidel is a representative to Australia and New Zealand for the Fronte Polisario, the UN-recognised liberation movement for Western Sahara. 
when we spoke late last week, I asked Kamal first about the situation re the COVID virus in the first the refugee camps and whether vaccines are available. It went from uh, the Australia Western Sahara Association to Oxfam and uh, Oxfam used it in the refugee camps mainly to help with the efforts to uh, control COVID spread in the camps. Uh, they, for example, installed um, hand washing stations around, I believe, a thousand of them in schools and in hospitals. And also they uh, put some of the funds into their uh, uh, awareness raising campaign about uh, COVID uh, and, uh, yeah, within the refugee camps. I would imagine that getting enough water to have the cleanliness is a difficult thing. Uh, yes, uh, it is not easy because uh, the water is underground and it has to be transported in water water tanks and distributed to the refugee camps. Uh, and also there is a need for the installations within the institutions for the people to use it. And how has the COVID-19 impacted on the availability of NGOs to get to the camps? Uh, that was, yeah, it's a big impact because there were lots of, uh, uh, you know, of uh, NGOs in the refugee camps before COVID-19. But once that uh, started, they uh, asked all their workers to get out. And at the moment, there are no uh, foreign uh, uh, workers within uh, in the camps at the moment. But the NGOs still involved some of them, uh, and they have recruited people, Sahari people, to work uh, for them in the in the refugee camps. And they are in touch with them and sending them, you know, the necessary support. But yeah, it's been a big impact and uh, has affected the flow of aid and medicine and support to the people living in the refugee camps. How serious is the COVID in the camps? Well, fortunately, it's, the situation is not uh, serious. It seems to be under control. Of course, the camps have been affected like everywhere else in the world, but the spread is not uh, out of control or wide in the, in the camps. Are vaccines getting into the camps? They have started getting there, uh, but I think there's, you know, there's still a lot of work to be done uh, to get more, but also to, um, in my opinion, convince the people to uh, start taking them because there is a lot of uh, reluctance uh, and conspiracy theories going around about the vaccines and their use and their effectiveness and the side effects and all of that. So there is still a lot of work to be done to convince the people to come forward and take them. Are the vaccines coming through Morocco or through Algeria? Uh, through Algeria mainly.
and they've they've got a lot of the vaccines there, have they? I know that they have donated around 5,000 uh, some time ago, but I think our Minister of Health is trying to get, you know, more and the assistance uh, of United Nations uh, organizations uh, and things like that. What is the population of the camps, like, apart from children? Around 170,000. So you need a lot of vaccines? Uh, yes, yes. Eventually, there would be a you know a need for enough to for, to go around. What do you know about what's the situation in the occupied territory of Western Sahara? You mean in terms of COVID or in general? In terms of COVID and vaccinations. Well, I think that in the beginning there was. Uh, a number of cases because Morocco was not monitoring properly the, the borders and also the, the problem is the, the, the lack of adequate health system uh, in, in the occupied areas and the manner the Moroccans they don't care much about what, what happens to the local population. So there, there's been a, uh, you know a waves of, of COVID being detected in the, in the occupied areas. At the moment, I think the situation is okay. Uh, I'm not aware of, of uh, any uh, vaccination campaigns being undertaken in, in the occupied areas at the moment. And the general situation for human rights, I'm just wondering how it is under cover of COVID that the Moroccans might be sort of ramping up human rights abuses. Well, certainly that has been the case. We have seen, you know, from the beginning of uh, COVID-19 that the Moroccans used, uh, used this as a pretext to um, not allow any foreigners to visit and the media and also to impose restrictions on human rights activists and, and to not allow them to move around. Uh, and so many of, the, of them have been under house arrest, uh, like Sultana Haya, who's been to Melbourne and to Australia. Uh, she has been under house arrest since November last year, uh, and she's received a lot of the abuse and, but from the Moroccans who stand in front of her house and prevent any visitors and prevent her and her family from going out and they have you know broken into the house and beaten her and her family and yeah it's a terrible situation of Sultana and her sister Wara who uh, also uh, defy the authorities and raise the Sahrawi flag on the roof of their house uh, but that's just an example of uh, what's happening in the occupied areas. The situation is getting worse uh, and certainly not improving. And the fact that there is no international organizations or observers, or that makes it also worse. But the people managed to get out the stories. Yeah, I think that, yeah, the, the, the availability of um, mobile phones and internet these days allow news to come out 
But, uh, you know, the Moroccans don't really care much, uh, made any improvement despite the information getting out. Looking at the illegal extraction of phosphate from Western Sahara because it doesn't have the okay of the people but Morocco keeps on taking it out and putting it under their name. It's been a very successful campaign here in Australia. There's a very successful campaign underway and has been underway for quite a while in New Zealand. What can you tell us about their campaign there? You're right that in a sense in Australia the, all the companies involved in, in the uh, exploitation and the plunder of Western Sahara phosphate have uh, stopped for a number of years now. However, the attitude of the New Zealand companies is completely different. Uh, they are very intransigent. They, uh, they, they, don't, they don't care and they have not listened to our opinion. They refuse to meet us. They refuse to visit uh, the area and look at the situation there. And they are very selfish and uh, strong-headed. And unfortunately, the government of New Zealand uh, has not done much too to uh, convince them to find alternatives. Nonetheless, uh, there is a very committed group of people there in New Zealand uh, who have been working on this issue, trying to raise awareness and trying to put pressure on the companies and the government to do the right thing and stop this illegal exploitation. And uh, they have, uh, you know, uh, had uh, good media attention and they are determined, determined to continue and I think uh, very soon another shipment will arrive in New Zealand and I'm sure that our friends there will also do something about it. Uh, yeah, so it's, it's, it's still difficult for us to convince these companies that, that what they are doing is really wrong and harming people and uh, harming uh, our future and uh, our territory. And it's it's just unethical, immoral, uh, and illegal. Uh, That's why it's been called blood phosphates. And they do have alternatives, don't they? Yes, alternatives are available. That's why not only the same companies have stopped, but also companies all over the world, in Canada, in the United States, Scandinavia, like in Norway, have uh, found alternatives and have stopped. Uh, Western Sahara is not the only place in the world where it has this commodity. Uh, And also, you know, there are other things also they can do to modify the equipment they have to use other phosphates from other parts of the world. And the government of New Zealand, especially the Prime Minister, can't say that they are ignorant of the situation for the people in the refugee camps in Algeria and the, and the situation for the people under occupation because many years ago, Prime Minister Redern actually visited the camps. You're right. I personally have met you know, officials uh, of the 
uh, in New Zealand, and I have to explain to them the situation. They they have the information. We have sent them a number of letters to the Prime Minister and to the various ministers, Minister of Trade, Minister of Agriculture, and they are aware, very well aware of the situation. They have been monitoring it for, for a long time, but they just haven't um, had, uh, you know, the courage to take uh, the necessary steps to convince these companies that, you know, enough is enough and it's time to stop. Um, we have been very patient and we have been, you know, explaining and putting forward our case and it's very just, it's very clear, it's very strong uh, and, you know, it's time for something to be done uh, on this issue. Uh, unfortunately, you know, politics and business interests come on the way of uh, what we are trying to achieve. But uh, I think it doesn't make it uh, right or appropriate or legal. So uh, it's harming New Zealand's uh, reputation and standing in the world. The, you know, Prime Minister Arden has been known to, to, to do the right thing on many other issues, but she hasn't done the necessary thing on this one yet. Finally, Kamal, it must be very difficult for you stuck in Australia and you'd be normally travelling around to publicise the fact of the occupation of your country and you can't do any of those things. Now, what is your main role then on a day-to-day basis under those conditions? Well, thanks to you know, Zoom and uh, other mediums, uh, we are able to talk to people and to participate in meetings and uh, spread the word. Yeah, it's it's um, doing more or less the same things I have been doing. It's just physically I'm not there, but uh, we are able to, you know, communicate with people and uh, keep doing the work we have been doing before the start of this uh, uh, epidemic. So, uh, yeah, we're looking forward to be able to travel soon, hopefully. I'm just wondering what support you are getting from other African countries because it's well known that Western Sahara is the, the only colony left in Africa. Mm. The support from Africa has been really and continues to be very strong. You know, Africans... Uh, feel that their own struggle for freedom and liberation is incomplete as long as the Sahara is still occupied and is still considered as a non-self-governing territory. And the decolonization process has not finished in the continent of Africa. Therefore, the support is strong, the understanding is, the sympathy, the, uh, you know, the, is, is very strong from the Africans. Yeah, it's every every time the African Union meets, it takes uh, strong, adopts strong resolutions on Western Sahara. You know, Morocco is uh, keeps more and more isolated on the continent, uh, and yeah, so it's still it's still very strong and and very uh, and very uh, helpful for us in our struggle for for, for liberation. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. And Kamal Fadal is a representative to Australia and New Zealand for the Frente Polisario, the UN-recognised liberation movement 
for Western Sahara. Next on the program, the first part of a webinar from early June. It was presented by Verity First, the Executive Director of UTS Centre for Social Justice and Inclusion. The topic, Palestine and the media. How does the media shape the conversation on human rights issues in Palestine and Israel? There were three speakers and Verity introduced them as follows. Samar Sabawi wages beautiful resistance through her art. A recipient of multi-awards for her critically acclaimed plays, Tales of a City by the Sea and Them, Sabawi also co-edited Double Exposure, plays of the Jewish and Palestinian diasporas. Winner of the Patrick O'Neill Award and co-authored the poetry anthology Remember My Name, poetry by Samar Sabawi, Ramsey Baroud and Jera Basura. Winner of the Palestine Book Award. Samar was awarded a PhD from Victoria University. Her doctoral thesis is titled Inheriting Exile, Transgenerational Trauma and the Palestinian-Australian Identity. Anthony Lowenstein is a journalist who has written for the New York Times, The Guardian, the BBC and more. He is a best-selling author whose books include My Israel Question, The Blogging Revolution and Prophets of Doom. He is currently writing a book out in late 2022 of how Israel's occupation has gone global. Professor Saba Bebawi is Head of Journalism and Writing at UTS. She holds a PhD and has published on Media Power, the role of media in democracy building and investigative journalism in conflict and post-conflict regions. She has authored a number of pages, including Investigative Journalism in the Arab World, Issues and Challenges. And here, Verity asks her first question. So I'm going to begin uh, by talking about the language of objectivity. It's obviously what we expect of our journalists, but does it dehumanise violence? When we talk about casualties rather than children dying, is this objective reporting? How does the panel think this language of objectivity affects reporting on Israel and Palestine? And I might begin with you, Sabah. Thanks, uh, Verity, for that introduction. The idea of objectivity is a very interesting one in the scholarly literature. And when we talk about reporting reality, we don't necessarily lean towards providing an objective account as far as the academic literature goes. So rather than offering a portrayal of what reporting reality is, is not objective journalism. It is about offering a portrayal of what is actually happening on the ground by including all aspects of the event. And I like to refer, and I would like to even quote CNN uh, correspondent Christiane Anampour, who talks about this, and I use it very often in an interview about her experience with the Bosnian War. And she says it's important that calling it as it is is not biased reporting and it is not taking sides. 
and she believes that objectivity means, and I'm going to quote her, giving each side their hearing, but not treating each side the same, not drawing a moral equivalence, which would be a false equivalence, not saying on one hand and on the other hand. She's saying the person who is being sniped and killed is somehow equal to the person who is sniping and killing. And the forces who are bombarding, besieging and shelling a city full of civilians do not have the same moral standing as those who are being bombed, shelled, starved and besieged. And that is the truth. Having said that, and I'm sure Anthony and Samar have more to say about this, but I'd like to raise another point here, specifically in regards to the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. And this is from personal observation. So even if the reporting is objective, it does remain very limited. And I'll give you some examples here briefly. To reduce the conflict, in my opinion, to reporting on numbers of casualties without providing the overall context is not only problematic, in my view, but dangerous. This is a conflict that is the longest ongoing conflict in modern times. It has a complex and layered history, but also the current situation is extremely complicated. So we cannot diminish it to a number or a counting story, which is what I seem to be seeing. The other point I'd like to make is that the media somehow have been focusing on Gaza. It is not the Gaza conflict. It is the Palestinian conflict. Gaza is part of the Palestinian territories. In my opinion, this is a deliberate, where I see it, it, it as a mediating redrawing of the borders in an attempt to eliminate other parts of Palestine from the story and in turn form the Palestinian discourse. So I know I've got a lot to talk about, and I'll stop there, but just some brief points that I wanted to start and kick off with. I think the question of objectivity is one that's regularly used by media organisations when they're teaching young journalists, or universities for that matter, how to report on the conflict, or frankly any issue. But often I think it's a false question. Let me briefly explain why. I think a better word to, rep um, to talk about journalism is fairness rather than objectivity. Fairness, I think, is a much better way to view how we should be seeing any number of issues, not just Israel-Palestine, whether you report on a war, whether you report on a local issue, whatever it may be. Objectivity very much suggests that there's two equal sides. And as Sabah said, you know, there's, well, he said this and she said that, your audience, you decide. It's kind of a nonsense question. And the reason I say that is, particularly when it comes to Israel-Palestine, as someone who's reported on it for 15 years, I was based there for years, I've been often doing uh, work there always independently in Israel, the West Bank and Gaza, is that there's not two equal sides here. There is an occupied and occupier. Israel occupies Palestine and Palestinians are occupied. That does not mean that one is uncritical towards, for example, Palestinian leadership doesn't mean one doesn't say that the Palestinian Authority or Hamas are corrupt, awful organisations. One can say that one should. One doesn't become a, have to, you know, become a propagandist for one side or the other. It's not at all what I would suggest. But good, fair reporting would suggest that there is context for what is happening, or there is context to say why is there the longest-running occupation in modern times. And as a journalist myself, who has thankfully often not been forced or required to play along with certain rules that my media bosses may tell me I have to play along to, which is often how it works in this sort of situation. You too often have, a, 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 I think, a, a false equivalence here, where a lot of the coverage in the last few weeks 
very much frames it as Hamas fires rockets, Israel defends itself and, and shoots back. Now, an average person seeing that or hearing that might think, oh, okay, these two sides are at it again. They're fighting again. Why can't they just get along and hug and move on? I mean, maybe not hug, but why can't they just shake their hands and just move on? The reason that's, it's obvious to say this, but the reason that's a false equivalence is this is not two equal sides here. This is a situation where too often the context of, for example, Gaza remains occupied. The land seen air borders are controlled by Israel. There's been a 15-year siege, which Israel and Egypt have imposed brutally. Many people in Gaza, most people cannot come and go freely. Only a handful of people can for a range of reasons. So ultimately, without that kind of context, the last two weeks can seem like just another round of a war that seems to go on indefinitely. And I'll just finish on this one point. What's so interesting, though, despite the fact that so much of media reports it like that, in many Western countries, public support, in fact, in the last five or ten years, is far more moving towards sympathy for Palestinians. And I've often, on one level, wondered why that is. Not because I don't share that view, because I often wonder where people are getting that information from. They're not getting it from most of the mainstream press. They're not getting it mostly from the political elites. They may be getting it from social media, from their friends, etc. And yes, I think there's maybe a, a growing awareness of what Palestinians are suffering for in the last 50 or 70 years. But I think that public opinion is, is definitely shifting, including here in Australia. And I think we should often wonder if that's happening more despite mainstream media rather than because of it. Samar, do you have anything to add around the language of objectivity? I actually, I, I do, but I want to pick up on that last point, which you said you'll come back to later. But just to say that in, in previous decades, we always relied on the media to shape public opinion. We knew that the media could shape public opinion. And I think I'm hoping at this point, seeing that shift in public opinion that ran way ahead of the media institutions, that it might just be public opinion for once um, that's going to actually shift how the media responds to the question of, of coverage of Israel uh, and Palestine. Um, on the question of objectivity, I'm really more interested in, in accuracy and humane reporting. Mm -hmm. I think objectivity is a very difficult bar to explain and to hold and to prove uh, what is being objective when you're dealing with an occupier and occupied, when you're dealing with an oppressor and the oppressed. Um, when just reporting on the crime within itself exposes the criminal, then the criminal is not going to be happy because you haven't been objective because in their opinion, you've taken sides by exposing the crime. And that's exactly what happens with Israel every time that the Palestinian voices are allowed to express their story in the mainstream. I'm also interested in, um, when, when we talk about objectivity, in looking at the representation of the voices and uh, of stakeholders. How much access do we have as, as Palestinians to tell our stories and to shape, to explain the narrative that goes with the, the news footage. And I'll tell you one thing, during every Gaza bombing, but certainly during the last one as well, the Palestinian uh, community and members of the Palestinian activism circles were hounded by reporters, which you would think is a good thing, but the reporters didn't want us to talk about the context. They didn't want us to analyze what was going on. They didn't want us to explain what was happening in Sheikh Jarrah, which triggered this entire, um, you know, recent uh, episode. Uh, they wanted the human story, but they wanted the human story taken completely out 
of the context in which it was happening. To me, it's just mind-boggling. And it goes back to the idea that uh, a lot of Israeli supporters would always begin every conversation with when they're having it with you. They'll say, it's complicated. And of course it's complicated when every time you're looking at footage of people being bombed, civilians being bombed with no place to run to, uh, being besieged, being kept at checkpoints. I mean, some of the footage that comes out of Palestine, in your worst nightmare or in, in, in the most incredible science fiction film, you cannot imagine having people caged up in those ways in order to go to work every morning, for example. But the footage never makes sense because the analysis that comes with it is completely taken from another planet, which is the, the Israeli uh, analysis of what is going on. So the people who are, who are consuming mainstream media are left confused because what they're hearing, the sound bites that are coming with the footage that their eyes are looking at are so different and so contradictory. And I think that is why we're seeing change shifting in, in, in public opinion because the Palestinians are now actually trying to tell their stories in any other means possible, having given up on the mainstream in hosting uh, their voices, you know, giving them a platform to speak. So my next question is around activism or as opposed to investigative journalism. When covering issues from the Me Too movement to Black Lives Matter and again on Palestine, there have been some high-profile cases where it's been suggested reporters care more about advocacy than investigative journalism. Saba, can you comment on that? The eternal question, advocacy or journalism, there are a few points here to highlight, and I'll probably refer to my own research where I did a study on Al Jazeera English comparing it to BBC and CNN and its coverage of events in the Middle East. And I found two interesting points. So the first point is that each news organization reported from its national perspective. Now, I probably didn't need to spend six years doing that, but it was good to get the facts to support it. Uh, and we call that selective reporting. And that's choosing one fact over others and eliminating others to form a particular narrative or to form a new social reality. The other thing that I found particularly interesting is Al Jazeera English always had two different and often opposing narratives on the same event, on the same day, from the same newsroom. And that was based on the reporter's political allegiance. Arab reporters tended to give an Arab angle to the event, and Western reporters were giving a Western angle to it. So what this means is that reporting is selective across the board, and a, a phenomena that I actually call mediated advocacy. There's another point I would like to raise here, that there is no universal culture of journalism. When we talk about advocacy being different from journalism, this is a Western discourse. There is no one way of doing things. There are different cultures of journalism. There are different journalisms across the world. And I'll bring one example from China, where I have a colleague of mine, Haiyan Wang, who wrote about transformation of investigative journalism in China and the fact that Chinese investigative journalists cannot practice investigative journalism in the Western way. So what they've been doing historically is marrying it with advocacy journalism. And that is the way they do investigative journalism, because she found that in order for them to achieve their aims and full potential, 
investigative journalism in China needs to be integrated with the practice of activist journalism. So although investigative journalism is what we define as fact-based, evidence-based journalism, it is fueled by a sense and purpose of advocacy in many parts of the global south and particularly in the Arab world. So working with Arab investigative journalists, it's the passion that leads them to talk about a particular theme, not only find the issues, but how they report on it. But they still do it in a facts-based, evidence-based way. And in that situation, in that context, it works. Do you have anything to add around that advocacy piece? I'll talk about Palestinian uh, journalists, because I've I've dealt a lot um, with Palestinian journalists uh, over the years. For Palestinian journalists living in Gaza, for example, they know that getting the story out is advocacy. They're being honest to the story. They're shooting what is happening. The camera is is showing things as they are, and they're reporting things as they are. But they know that our lives as Palestinians under occupation and in Gaza, our lives are very political, regardless of whether we want it to be or not. And just by telling a Palestinian story, that a side has been taken. And so the idea of, of objective journalism in that sense it's very difficult to, to apply for people who are in war zones, who are part of the war zone. So a journalist who is a war, a war zone journalist, who's an American with an American passport, who goes to Afghanistan and reports, might still be able to have that distance between what they're reporting, might have the protection gear and the, the protection, everything of being an American citizen. A journalist in Gaza knows that whether or not they report the story, they might be killed because a bomb might fall and their entire family might be wiped out. They know they have no protection uh, and they know that their lives and the, the, the lives of the people they love and they care about depend on how much they tell of that story and about the details of the story as well. Not just about, you know, such and such happened today, such and such happened to this family who live in this house who are eating this food, this child was torn to pieces as he was having his sandwich. These details matter. And and so with Palestinian journalists on the ground, in the middle of it all, who are themselves part of an occupied people, who are themselves part of an oppressed people, I don't think that question applies. You've been listening to the first part of our webinar from the UTS Centre for Social Justice and Inclusion, featuring three prominent speakers. Samar Sabawi, Anthony Lowenstein, and Professor Saba Iwawi. And on the program next week, we'll have the final part. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am, on digital and online, 3CR Radical Radio. Focus today on Venezuela, in particular an interview with Venezuelan human rights activist Antonio gonzalez Plesman by Australian journalist, author and activist Fred Fuentes. In the interview, Plessman argues that Venezuela under Maduro has turned right and represses the left. I spoke with Fred and asked him where Plessman fits in with the left in Venezuela. Antonio, uh, for a long time, uh, has been both at, at, a, at an academic level and at an activism level working on the issues of popular power and and human rights. 
I'd also add it at a third level, which is working in, in the state institutions. So him, along with the team that he works with at the non-government organisation Surgentes, uh, were involved in a variety of different projects, in particular projects, for instance, to uh, reform the Venezuelan police force, a, a police force that prior to Chavez's uh, coming to power was you know, notoriously bad when it came to, to human rights, you know, continues to have large problems in terms of, of human rights abuses uh, today in Venezuela. It's still an area that the government has been working on trying to reform to, to deal, with, deal with that problem. Also been working very closely with the communal council and commune movement, uh, carrying uh, not just as activists, but carrying out uh, field work uh, in, in that area to, to see how popular power has been developing uh, in Venezuela. So uh, this, this group about yeah, eight, eight years ago or so set up Surgentes as a sort of a, a research group to, to specifically focus, as I said, on those two areas of uh, popular power and, and human rights in Venezuela. I suppose possibly even unique in the Venezuelan context is that unlike pretty much all of the other uh, NGOs in Venezuela that firstly, well, you know, largely rely on funding, if not directly, perhaps indirectly from, from the US government or the European Union. Uh, Surgentes is, is a, a human rights organisation that primarily, uh, you know, operates and is run by people who, who identify as, as Chavistas, as supporters of Chavez's project uh, for socialist transformation and also who uh, don't come from the human rights, from the sort of traditional liberal viewpoint of it, but rather view human rights through, through a class framework, um, uh, through a left-wing left -wing framework. So offer a, a different vision uh, of understanding human rights and popular power than what's generally accustomed to, to, to many of the NGOs we, we might know and hear, hear about as you know, things like Amnesty International and, and Human Rights Watch. Has the group run foul of the government, the Maduro government? No, no, no. The, the, the group has at, at no point uh, ever been uh, threatened or, or shut down for the work that it does, whether that be for the research it does or for its support for, for protests. Uh, in fact, over just, just in the past week or so, they've been uh, you know, openly uh, supporting uh, at least two campaigns uh, very publicly. The first is for the release of some of the... Uh, uh, what they refer to as the sort of worker prisoners. Uh, that is essentially a, a number of trade unionists uh, who, for one reason or another, are, are currently in jail uh, and who sort of enters along with a number of other uh, trade unions and left groups believe these people have been wrongly imprisoned and, and should be freed. Uh, and are also supporting a, a march that a number of small farmer campesino groups uh, are initiating, following on from a march they did a few years ago uh, to complain about the situation in the, in the countryside. Uh, where they did have meetings with the Maduro government at that time and were able to establish some roundtables to, to work out some of the issues with some agreements. But several years later, many of those agreements have, have not been fulfilled. So the, the, you know, the, the same Campesina groups are, are marching once again on, on the Caracas. And so they've, you know, again, on their social media and, and at the been actively supporting that, but you know, have not in, in any way uh, uh, been threatened with closure or anything like that by the Maduro government. What examples are there of the turn to the right? I suppose to, to preface the, my response, uh, you know, one of the main reasons why I, I, I spoke with Antonio, I did an interview with him for Green Left, was the fact that Surgentes uh, recently put out a, a report, a, a very extensive, basically entitled Turn to the Right and Repression to the Left, uh, Human Rights Violations in the Popular Camp. Now, the Popular Camp in Venezuela generally refers to 
yeah, all, all those who have to in some way or another work to work to survive. So it's not, not just workers, but small farmers, campesinos, uh, those in the informal sector, unemployed. So looking at sort of that, yeah, the very, very specifically looking at the situation of human rights uh, amongst those sectors. That report, you know, very much details what, what they argue is firstly a, a, a turn to the right in the form of government policies, both in the political and, and economic sense. So what they refer to is that what their you know, analysis is that in, in the sphere of the economy, many of the policies that were previously being implemented by the Hugo Chavez government and even by the Maduro government up until about 2015, and they pinpoint 2015 as, as a key point of inflection, uh, many of those policies were back placed by policies that certainly you know, no longer point in the direction of, of a socialist transformation. So they talk about providing tax exemptions for foreign companies that want to invest in, in Venezuela, basically allowing the de facto, uh, facto dollarisation of the Venezuelan economy where now you know, a large chunk of, of purchases occur using US currency rather than the, the local currency, the, the Bolivar. Laws that essentially not only open up you know, what would generally be referred to as kind of tax-free economic zones that give sort of special rights to corporations. But in many cases, these zones, uh, the business dealings that occur in there are being done under cloak of confidentiality, in large part, you know, as, as a way to circumvent the, the existing sanctions, which essentially make it illegal for, for foreign companies to, to work in Venezuela. A minimum wage that, you know, has been as a result of hyperinflation being pulverised to the point of being one of the lowest in, in the world at about $2 a month. So they look at these policies and argue that on this basis that, the, you know, it can be said that the government's economic policies have shifted to the right. They also argue that the, it, it's sort of um, in the political sphere it has as well. So uh, unlike previously under Chavez where sort of right-wing offensives were met with uh, calls for greater democracy, greater organisation, greater mobilisation, greater participation of the people. What we've seen, uh, the report outlines, at least since 2015, is, is, a, is a closure of democratic spaces. Uh, so they refer to that both at the level of elections, where we've seen a number of elections being postponed or certain political parties being not allowed to run in order to, to favour the governing party, and also at the level of popular power at the level of the communal councils and, and communes which had flourished under Chavez as spaces for residents, community members to get together to discuss and debate their own issues and problems and come up with ways to resolve them. Uh, what we're seeing is an increasing move by the government to sort of see members of the, the governing party, the United Socialist Party of Venezuela, become the dominant force in, in these bodies which were, were you know, at least thought of it at their initiation as being open bodies, non-political bodies, bodies where anyone, whether you're pro-government, opposition or supporters of neither side of politics, to be involved. So that, that's what they sort of outline uh, has been occurring since 2015. And, and they're very clear. They, they sort of point to 2015 as a key turning point, particularly December 2015, because December 2015 is when the Chavismo, United Socialist Party of Venezuela, loses control of, of the National Assembly. Uh, so not only terms of politics in Venezuela, that is the legislative arm of, of the state. But it also, that election is significant, more so than just because of that, because it also details, or at least electorally details, a, a change in the balance of forces where, for the first time, there isn't a, a clear majority 
for Trevisno and that the opposition yeah, look like they're in a position where they, they may be able to mobilise that that sort of electoral base to then re- recall the, the president as well, which is allowed under under the Venezuelan constitution. So un- under this sort of the, the threat of the opposition uh, increasing its, its weight, not just inside the institutions, but in, in electoral terms, and combined with the pressure that the, the, the sanctions that have been imposed by the United States and the European Union, which have sought to strangle the economy, the report argues that you know, as a result of these, these factors... And, and others, but you know, these, these are two important factors. 2016 sanctions ratcheted up, 2017 even more so under Trump. Uh, we see that the government's response to that is, as they you know, sort of refer to it, a, a turn to the right in, in its policies. How has the government responded to this report? Look, I, I'm not aware of any specific response to this report, but this report is not the first you know, voicing of sort of critical dissent uh, towards the, the Maduro government. Uh, for example, the, the last uh, National Assembly elections, we saw probably for the first time, um, or certainly the most significant formation of its kind in Venez- recent Venezuelan history of a, of a dissident left coalition running in those elections. Now, in the electoral terms, it, it you know, didn't do very well, did very poorly, got only one deputy elected to the parliament and I think from memory we're about 2% or 3% of the vote across the country but more it had a bigger importance symbolically in that it brought together pretty much uh, some of the main smaller political parties uh, involved in the government in the coalition that had been backing the government up until that time so the coalition that had previously run with the United Socialist Party of Venezuela so we're talking here about the Communist Party of Venezuela talking about Homeland for All, talking about uh, Tupamaros, a number of trade union groups, a number of communal council groups uh, and individual activists who came together to, to form an, an electoral alliance. And, you know, I, perhaps not exactly the same as what the report outlines, but, you know, had a very similar position as well, uh, arguing that the Maduro government was moving away uh, from the situation that, you know, Chavez had fought for, moving away from that vision of, a 21st century socialism uh, rooted in the sort of active participation of, of, of the population, of the need to, at a very minimum, a defence of the socialisation of, of, of the key means of productions, uh, if not a great expansion of, of that uh, socialisation of the means of production to hand, hand over more and more uh, to communities and workers to be run by them, ran on this kind of platform. So in, the, in that sense, it's... it's it's not a, a, a new criticism. It's one that's been growing in the last few years. And certainly, you know, the Maduro government has made it pretty very clear that they're, they're very much opposed to, to this criticism of, of, and of several occasions publicly attacked some of these parties, uh, calling them infantile leftists, uh, other, other such names, and, and, in, and in other cases gone even further. So, for instance, we've seen the, the, the electoral court uh, move to intervene these parties and hand over their party registration to sort of minority sectors who are more aligned with the government. So that by the time that the, the last elections that I referred to, the National Assembly elections occurred, uh, many of these parties that were part of the coalition had to run under the Communist Party's name because on the one hand, the, they didn't get registered the, the, the name of the coalition, which was the, the Popular Revolutionary Alliance. And on the other hand, uh, many of the other parties that were part of it had their registrations taken off them and, and given to to minority faction. So how serious is this 
Yeah, no, in terms of how serious the split is, I suppose it depends on, on, on how, you, how you want to measure it. So in terms of, as I said, in terms of the electoral, an electoral split, uh, it was very small at the National Assembly elections. It was, it was 3%. You know, now, it's possible that with elections being held this year for mayors and governors and, and local council, we, we may see a different result. We may see the growth of that, that support for, for those parties, particularly uh, in areas where they have established local leaders that, that might have their own a personal uh, base of support uh, for the work that they've been doing in those areas. But I, I think it's extremely unlikely that we'll see uh, these parties being able to outvote the governing Socialist Party of, of Venezuela. But where I do think it, it's sort of, um, you know, significant is that it's, it's creating a, a very necessary discussion within the, the Chavista camp, uh, a camp that, you know, the, the, of course, they, these criticisms are not exclusively the, the hold of those outside of the party. They're also elements within the, the governing party that have their own criticisms. Now, they may not all be exactly the same, but certainly have criticisms of certain aspects of, of where the Maduro government is going or some of the policies it's implementing or, or perhaps of its wholesale, wholesale program. But what these different things do do is, is hope to have a discussion. Now, of course, the, the government, you know, in many cases, uh, or at least certain sections of the government, want the opposite. and They want as little discussion as possible as they try to manoeuvre in that sense it'll be very important to see how that develops. Uh, that, that's where I, you know, whether you call it a split or, or just a, a, an opening up of discussion, you know, this, this will be a, a key gauge of occurs or, you know, or how, how, what framework it's allowed to occur in, in Venezuela. Well, the collective right in Venezuela must be rubbing their hands together. Not really, because they're, they're actually in a worse situation. I mean, this, this, the right wing's problem for, for, for many years now, the, the the right have been experts at shooting themselves in the foot. So to, in, in many ways, 2015 was not just a point of inflection for the Chavista camp, but also a point of inflection for the opposition because it was by far their, their, the pinnacle of, of their strength, as I said, having won the National Assembly and you know, very much looking like they had an electoral support that could win presidential elections. Now, having outlined to you everything that's happened since then on, on the Chavista camp and the growing disagreements and, and, and frictions and, and splits that have occurred, you, you would think, oh, well, the opposition must be in power, and yet we look at Venezuela and, and, the, and the opposite is the Rather than wanting to continue down the, that electoral road, the opposition sent, felt that they could take uh, power by non-electoral means, uh, which is probably their weakest area. So while they may have had a, a strong electoral base and had now the, the legislative arm in their control, uh, they still didn't have the power on the streets to defeat Chavismo. They still didn't have the military on their side. And so the failed adventure after failed coup after failed invasion means that today the, the, the right is more split and fractured than probably it has ever been under previously Chavez and, and today Maduro. But they've really got their own their own problems uh, in, in many ways to, to deal with. And I, and I think in some ways that is also another factor. So I, I've mentioned that the, the, you know, the sanctions are one factor... Uh, that explains all, all this occur, what's occurring in Venezuela. I've mentioned, obviously, the, the strength of the opposition, but actually now its weakness is also another factor that I think in some ways helps to explain why this debate has opened up, because I think the debate has been latent within Chavismo, but you know, under the threat of uh, a resurgent insurrectional right wing, many felt like, well, we've, you know, we've got to keep our mouths shut and fight to defend this government because you know, we know that it will be absolutely worse a complete disaster were the right wing to get into power. But looking at the right wing now, where they're perhaps further away than ever they have been uh, from being able to, to take power, 
many perhaps now on the left feel that, well, you know, if, if we can't have a debate now, then, then when will we have a, have a debate when that threat of certainly at least internal opposition isn't really at play at the moment, of course. The big factor that Venezuela does face, though, is, is the sanctions, um, the impact that that's having on, on its economy, how to circumvent that. But that's also a, another big factor in explaining what's, what's occurring in, in Venezuela today, not just through what the sanctions mean for Venezuela's economy, not just through the government's policies to try to circumvent them, uh, which I've mentioned, giving you know sort of allowances for corporations, uh, opening up sections of the economy for, for corporations to come in with uh, sort of un, unlimited rights compared to the rest of uh, what, what was previously uh, the kind of controls that were placed for foreign corporations or, or local corporations, uh, but also the kind of dealings that this has entailed because once, once you start to need to rely on certain economic agents, certain private business owners to do dealings for you uh, in the background, uh, because you can't no longer do them publicly because any company that's caught publicly doing deals with the state, you start to create very, very murky contacts, very murky networks. And of course, the, the people that are running those networks uh, have their own economic interests at heart, whether they may be pretending to do this for, for the benefit of, of the government in Venezuela. At the, by and large, these are, are capitalists who are, who are interested in making money for themselves whichever way they can. And so that's created a, another important sort of factor or pressure point in Venezuela, those those economic agents, those private business people that are working with the government but in the background to try to secure ways of, and in the process acting as a pressure point on the government to continue its its sort of shifting economic policies further in a, in a sort of pro-capitalist direction, a direction that favours them uh, as opposed to uh, workers in Venezuela. Well, taking into account all that you've said, where does this leave the country of Venezuela? Was the increasing pressure from both the US and sections of Europe? Where it leaves the country is in, a, in obviously in an economic level, in a very disastrous level. Uh, the, the, the impact of the sanctions cannot be understated and, and, and the and, well, certainly the report but also in the interview that I did with, with Antonia, you know, he, he makes it clear, you know, the, these sanctions are, are criminal and in no way from, in any any human rights perspective you have, a liberal perspective, a classist perspective, uh, it does, doesn't matter. You know, they, these can only be seen as, as criminal sanctions uh, that are just must be opposed in, in every sense. So in that regard, you know, we know the sanctions are having a, a, a devastating impact. On the political uh, level, though, it's, it's, it's having a different impact. You know, as I said, on, it's opening up a discussion within Chavismo, within the, the left of, of politics in Venezuela, it's also making it clear, both to the government and opposition, that they really no longer, neither of the two really have a majority support. You know, both are now minorities uh, within, within, a, within a country where probably the majority today side with, with neither the government or the opposition. Although importantly, what most polls show is that the, what, most, what a majority do identify with is with Chavez and his government, his legacy. But... Many of those today don't see that reflected in Maduro or, or, or feel that, you know, maybe the country needs to change. All sorts of different reasonings uh, why that's occurring. But this, this is, you know, uh, forcing a, a societal-wide debate. And you, you even see this in the sense that, you know, the opposition having basically failed in there since 2015 are now slowly being forced back to negotiation tables and it would appear basically forced back into the, the electoral road in the sense that, 
it looks like now many, if not perhaps the, all of the opposition, but certainly many of the opposition parties will participate uh, in the elections, or at least are in a process of negotiating terms to participate in the elections happening uh, later this year. And, that, and that's a positive step. And that, I think that is actually one thing that, um, you know, almost unanimously actually within the, the left and Chavismo that people do give credit for, for Maduro. But people may have their criticisms on, on other aspects of, as I've said, how... Maduro government has responded to popular power, um, how it's responded to, to economic policies and shifts that have been occurring. But many of them do genuinely see that, you know, the Maduro government has been able to write out an extremely hard situation, uh, confronted with sanctions, confronted with insurrectional attempts by the opposition, confronted with paramilitary in, uh, attempted invasions. Uh, in the face of all this, the Maduro government has, has, is still standing there. Uh, the question is, okay, well, it's still standing there. Um, where, where do we go next? You know, what's, what, what are the next steps in, in this process? And that's, that's kind of the big discussion that in some ways is, you know, uh, still opening up. It's still early at, at early stages, but is, is an important discussion for the future of Venezuela. Is it also being debated in countries who have followed Venezuela and should this? Probably not as much as it should be. I think perhaps the unfortunate well, possibly over that period, uh, roughly since about 2015, is on one level we've seen some of those that were perhaps the most fervent supporters of Venezuela, uh, perhaps like the most uncritical supporters of, of what were what were occurring or who, who thought everything was, was 100% perfect, become a bit disillusioned by the situation without any sort of attempt to understand well, why, you know, how does this situation come to be, how have... In- and, and foreign forces factors influenced the, the course that, that Venezuela has, has taken. So some of them perhaps today no, no longer really sort of worry about Venezuela or just sort of see it as a lost cause. I think on the other hand, you have those that believe that the only way to, you can support Venezuela is to just a critically, uh, uncritically support any, anything and everything the government does. Um, and it's better to, to, to remain silent on any, any wrongdoings on the part of the government because the only way you can do solidarity and defeat the sanctions is, is through such an approach. And the reality is that it just doesn't work. It doesn't reflect the reality of what's occurring in, in Venezuela. It's not, not a very convincing way of, of having a dialogue with, with people in, outside of Venezuela uh, who can see what's, what's occurring in that country. So that, that sort of makes it a bit harder as well to have that discussion. But, you look, I think it is an important discussion. It's important lessons um, that can be learned. And, you know, certainly that's what I've been attempting to do through my articles, which have been almost exclusively or particularly or largely based on, on interviewing a whole range of forces. So my interviews have not just, in, you know, in recent times, not just involved uh, interviews with Antonio from Surgentes, but, you know, members of, of the ruling United Socialist Party of Venezuela for their viewpoints as well. Uh, economists in the, in the country, trade union activists, are trying to get all of those different ranges of voices, uh, which of course they're, they're only individuals, and they're, 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 um, you know, but they, the attempt is there to, to reflect within the Chavista camp, within the left camp, Venezuela about the, the situation they're facing, what's occurring, and, and how to how best to overcome them, and how best to express our solidarity with those struggling for for a better Venezuela. Finally, Fred, will crunch time be the election at the end of the year? It's hard to tell, as I said, because firstly, we don't know exactly what's going to happen in terms of who will run in in those elections. Secondly, 
even if we are to imagine a scenario where the opposition do agree to run uh, in those elections, we are dealing with local mayors, and, and it certainly has been the case before that the opposition has had control of very important governorships in the country. So that this that wouldn't create a, a new scenario, uh, or certainly a, a scenario that hasn't been uh, foreseen. What is also unknown is exactly what's going to happen with the sanctions, because what we are seeing is a lot of noise about lifting the sanctions, if not completely, at least partially. But every once in a while, we're also seeing that noise combined with conditions being imposed on the Venezuelan government, and some of which are you know, really conditions that are, that are you know, arguably you know, not really up for negotiations, particularly if one defends a, a country's right to self-determination and the defence of their national sovereignty. Uh, so I think those those two factors will, will be key yeah, key things to watch to really be able to get a sense. So, so without knowing where, the, where those two things go, the dialogue uh, and, and the sanctions, it's hard to envisage, hard to really say there'll be a, a key breaking point or a key crunch time. But I would, if I was going to hesitate a guess in just seeing how, you know, what's been happening in Venezuela now for a number of years, I'd be extremely surprised if we did see like a, a sudden rupture of, of that sort in this period, I think what we'll see is a, is a return to a period of dialogue and negotiation, which will intertwine the two issues of the elections with the sanctions and with the possibility of elections later this year, where the opposition once again increase their presence in at, the, at least at the level of state and local governorships, uh, mayorships. But you know that that would not necessarily represent a, a fundamental shift in the balance of forces, and would just be a a continuation of platform for what really the opposition seek, and I think will be an interesting, interesting to see how how it fits into all these discussions about the sanctions and the the elections. But will be what they're hoping for, which is a, a recall referendum, uh, which, if if I remember correctly, would be possibly due uh, next year at the absolute latest the the, the, the following year. Uh, but I, I'm sure that the opposition will be pressuring to to bring that forward, and that that would be a, a really important battle future of, of Venezuela were, uh, it, were that to occur. And of course the really important thing is the, the people of Venezuela who have suffered an awful lot over those years. Oh absolutely and that's why you know front and centre really you know and, and as Sudhentes you know as Antonio mentions in his report you know front and centre has to be the, the lifting of the sanctions because it's important to remember that the sanctions play two really have a twofold effect on Venezuela. One, which is the one that's been most focused on, of course, is the devastating economic sort of uh, uh, impact it has on, on people's daily lives. And, you know, having visited Venezuela, you know, a couple of times in the last few years, you, you can really see just how hard, just how much time people have to spend in their in their day-to-day life just trying to circumvent the sanctions. You know, it's not, you can't just, you know, because of the the way the sanctions operate and the devastating effect it's had on its economy. You can't just go to one shop and do your shopping there. You know, you've basically got to spend half a day travelling, traversing Caracas to find the right place that sells the right thing that you're looking for at a price that you can afford in a context where your monthly wage is, is $2. So you've also probably got to have a, a side job in the in the informal sector to make a little bit more money or rely on remittances from overseas to, to help make ends meet. So you know, the, on the economic sense, it's extremely hard, but it's it's also, of course, has a very important political uh, effect because this this shift that that Sukhentes talks about, refer you know, outlines in its report, its shift in the government's economic policy, of course, is also directly related to the sanctions' attempt to to circumvent them. 
Um, and this is really what, you know, in large part the sanctions have, you know, I, I've sort of said that the sanctions, uh, you know, were argued as, as a means to get rid of the Maduro government. Now, if we judge it on, on that basis, uh, you'd say, well, they failed because the Maduro government is, is still there. But where the sanctions have succeeded is that it's basically forced the Maduro government to adopt many of the policies that it's quite likely an opposition government would have implemented uh, had they overthrown the Maduro government. So it has had an impact on, on politics in, in Venezuela. It has only had an impact in, in shifting the course of the government. And so that's why yeah, really front of centre in terms of helping the people and helping the situation in, in Venezuela is, is getting rid of those sanctions. Thank you so much, Fred. No worries. Thank you. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. And likewise with Fred Fuentes, journalist, author and activist. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.